0: Okay, well, hey guys, uh, my name's Henry, I'm a ministry apprentice here at Christchurch, and I have a question to start us off this morning. What do you look for in a ruler? Do you look for someone who is strong, who won't take no for an answer? Do you look for someone who is confident? Do you look for someone who's kind, who, who loves? Do you look for someone who shares a lot of the same opinions as you? It seems like around the world at the moment, we're going through a bit of a leadership crisis. Even just looking at the the leaders of countries, here in Australia, we've, over the past 13 years, had six changes in Prime Minister. (laughs) And in the 13 years before that, there was one change. Our leaders just aren't what we're looking for. And then across the world, we're seeing polling for elections completely blown out of the water because... People aren't willing to say that they support a certain leader. We live in a world that is longing for good leadership. But instead, we seem to keep getting people who are in it for themselves, who are more interested in making themselves look good instead of the common good. So what is it that makes a good leader? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see that God's chosen king is different from other rulers. God's chosen king is a generous king. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 30 this morning, but we'll have a look first at chapters 27 and 29 to get us up to speed on where where David is at. Um, Well, so far in 1 Samuel, we've been looking at these stories of two kings. We've had the reigning King Saul who rejected God's commands, and so God rejected him as king. And we've had the future King David, who has really spent most of his time so far just trying to escape from King Saul. And so today we truly get to see what the difference is between these two kings. Last week we looked at chapter 28 and we saw Saul's absolute despair. We heard those words spoken to him by the dead Samuel, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So the right question to ask is, well, how is this going to happen? Is there going to be some last fight where David and Saul fight and David triumphs over his enemy? We start today with a really stark statement by David in chapter 27, verse 1. He says, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Now, David was consistently rescued by God from the hand of Saul. But in his mind, that protection wasn't going to last forever. And so where was the one place that David could go where Saul wouldn't follow? Or the land of the Philistines, Israel's enemies. And so David and all his men traveled down to Gath, Goliath's hometown, to, to stay with Achish, the king of Gath. The great military leader, David, who led the Israelites in many fights against the Philistines, who killed Goliath, the man who was probably the hero of Gath. They go and stay in that city. What was Achish thinking? He'd probably heard about some of the stories about Saul's numerous attacks on David's life and thought, well, Saul's my enemy, and David is Saul's enemy, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he probably also wanted to show off to some of those Philistine kings, you know, prove to them that he's the best of them because he was able to convince the great David to join his side. And he even gave him a city to live in Ziklag. And so David settles in and lived amongst the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. For a year and four months. Now, that doesn't sound like something that the future king of Israel would do, right? Why is he living with Israel's enemies? Why is he allying himself with them? It's all a bit odd, isn't it? And we don't get a whole lot of answers there in chapter 27, but we do hear about what he gets up to while he's there. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. David wasn't just sitting around, twiddling his thumbs while he's living at Ziklag. No, he's going around and finishing what Israel was meant to do in the first place. Remember, these were the people who lived in the land that God had given to Israel and who God had explicitly told them to wipe out And so David went around doing exactly that. And he'd go out and attack the area and then return to Achish. And Achish had asked, David, where'd you go raiding today? And now it would have been no problem for for David to tell Achish the truth of where he'd been. You know, these people, they were also the enemies of the Philistines as well as the Israelites. But that's not what David did. David instead told Achish that, He'd gone raiding down in the region of the Negev, against the Negev of Judah. David's claiming that he's going raiding against Israel. (laughs) And you can imagine that that would be sweet sounds to Achish's ears. David really has turned against Israel. Verse 12, Achish trusted David and said to himself, he's become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Is that the sort of thing the king that, is, that David is going to be? Is he going to be the sort of king who lies? The king who allies himself with Israel's enemies? Well, as seems to happen every few years, the, da- the, the Philistines decide to go to war against Israel. But the difference is, this time, David is amongst the Philistines. We heard last week about Saul's fear in this. Of course he was fearful. He knew that his two greatest enemies, David and the Philistines, were together. Were allied and were coming up to fight him. But there in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 28, David realized what might happen. David might have to go to war against God's special people. Akish says, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. Quite the predicament. Go to war against your people? Or refuse and be at the mercy of Akish, who presumably isn't a big fan of betrayal. But David very anonymously stated, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Then you'll see your servant turn on you. Or then you will see your servant claim kingship by taking out Saul himself. Well, the author of 1 Samuel always tries to leave us in this tension and gives us a flash forward in chapter 28 to the night before the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And it's on that night that we heard that Saul's going to die in this battle. So will it be at David's hands? Well, chapter 29, it gives us the answer. The Philistines are here at Aphek, ready to move north up to the plain near Jezreel. And as they begin their march, someone notices David. This is the famous Israelite. This is the one who's killed tens of thousands of us. Why should we bring him into battle? But Achish trusted David, and so he stood up for him. But the Philistine commanders, they wouldn't listen at all. Send the man back that he might return to the place that you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he'll turn against us in the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Whether or not that was David's intention, we don't really know because he's not even given the chance to show them. The Philistines sent David away to head back down south to Ziklag as they head north to what we know will be a crushing defeat for Israel and for Saul. And so David's time with the Philistines comes to an abrupt end. And part of our question remains, what was he doing? Was he trying to be like a spy, going into a country to gain some information about them? Or is he just scared of Saul? If that's the case, it's hard to necessarily blame him. It seems fair enough to run away from someone who's tried to kill you at every chance he's got. But then he's also been saved every chance he's got. What do chapters 27 and 29 teach us about God's king? We've seen David lie. We've seen him live amongst the enemies of Israel. We've seen him even not completely destroy all of the things that are owned by the people he fought against, which we know previously had been commanded. Are these going to be the marks of God's king? Is David just going to be exactly like his predecessor Saul? Chapter 30, it tells us that the answer to that is a resounding no. God seems to bring David out of the predicament that David placed himself into by allying with Achish. The path of God's anointed king, it doesn't change. David still won't take the throne by force. No, God actually wants to teach us something else about his king. And so while while the battle rages to the north, instead we travel south with David to learn about the sort of king that he will become. Well, it only took David and his men three days to reach Ziklag from Aphek. That's really quite the journey. It's about 80 Ks. And they do it in not much time. And it could well be because they heard something about what had happened at home. Because the guys who David was actually raiding, when he said that he'd been raiding the Israelites, well, they came for revenge. We're at chapter 30, in verse 1. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They'd attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. You can imagine the utter distress that this would have caused. You were off joining a war that you never wanted to be a part of and were absent while your home was destroyed. Oh, your home was burnt. Your family carried off. David and all the men would have felt so much responsibility for this. Their wives and children gone because they were off with the Philistines. But their families weren't dead. And you know, I don't think that was because of some humanitarian love in the Amalekites, that they were opposed to taking life. They probably just wanted to sell them off into slavery. You, know, you can make more money off alive people than dead people. But all the people and all the wealth of Ziklag was taken by these raiders. Sad would be a soft word to describe how these men were feeling. Verse 4. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. They wept until they had no strength left to weep. And if you were there, it's probably at that point when everyone looked up and started to play the blame game. And you can guess the name that they came up with. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. His own men chose to place the blame on him. But look at where God's king, the man God set his heart on, look where he turned to find his strength. It's not in the things of this world, no, but David found his strength. In the Lord his God. When all of David's men, the people that he'd fought alongside, who'd come near to him in his darkest times, when those men rose up against him, David turned to God. And what did that look like? Well, verse 7 and 8. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Remember, this is the one guy who got away when Saul killed all the priests at Nob. Abiathar brought up to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David finds his strength in God, and so turned to him and asked the Lord if he'll be successful. And God answered, Yes. How your spirits would rise when hearing the good news from the God that you find your strength in. And remember, this event is probably happening at the same time as what we heard last week. The night before the battle. When Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. See the difference between these two kings? God's favor is on David and not on Saul. And so with God's promise of certain success, the men head off. and they headed south towards the Amalekites. Yeah, but they'd traveled pretty quickly so far, and so 200 of the 600 men, they remained behind so that the others could continue at that fast pace. And the problem is, though, how do you know where to look for them? Yeah, presumably they didn't just leave a big trail saying, "Hey, David, come this way." They're not that dumb. You know, David actually, but David was provided an answer by God. Because on their path, they found an Egyptian man. Verse 13 David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. Just in case we were unconvinced that the Amalekites really aren't humanitarians, we see this man. Abandoned when he fell sick, left to die. It's not like they wouldn't have had enough food for him, they just plundered the whole land. They had the resources. But what is it that David does? Well, he feeds him, he gives him water. He is compassionate towards this man, this slave man who had been abandoned and left to die. Now, you could argue that David simply wanted to get some information out of him and thought this would be easier by giving him something to eat. But surely, if he wanted to, he could have gotten the information by being far more harsh than just by being compassionate. And so the chase continued, and the man leads them down to where the Amalekites were, and suddenly they saw them. Not that they would have been difficult to spot. You know, verse 16 He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. They're <laughs> not even fleeing just sitting there, enjoying the plunder of the peoples they attacked. Now, presumably, there were thousands of these guys all spread across the countryside. What a sight that would be. But eating and drinking and dancing probably actually isn't the best way to prepare for a battle. They didn't realize that David was coming back. And so it's no wonder that when David comes down on them at dusk and they fight, well, victory is won. The rescue is completed. David and his 400 men come in and completely decimate them, such that only 400 get away. And now verse 19 and 20. David recovered everything that the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. God gave victory to his king. While Saul was at that very time fighting his last ever battle, David fights and with his only 400 men recovers everything that had been taken. God was with David every step of the rescue. Do we really think it was just a coincidence that they just happened to find an Egyptian slave? And do we really think that David would have been able to so convincingly beat the Amalekites without God's help? Of course not. Time and time again throughout 1 Samuel, we've seen that when God is on the side of his king, victory is won. And so they head back, taking all the plunder that had been taken And all the rest that the Amalekites had taken from elsewhere as well. And on the way back, they reached the men who'd been left behind. Imagine if you were one of these 200 men. You'd been sitting there on the edge of your seat, just unsure of what might have happened to your family. You're constantly looking off to the horizon, just hoping that someone might appear. And then someone yells, Oh, look, look, I see someone. And everyone looks and gets their hopes up. And then you realize it's just another bird. But then David appears with all of that plunder. And your wife and kids appear. And you are filled with joy. But Have a look at verse 22. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us. We will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. At first, this seems pretty reasonable, right? I'm almost certain that that same sort of idea has come out of my mouth before. We went and fought and earned our plunder. While you guys sat here because you were tired. Why do you deserve any of it? Well, it seems like natu- such a natural conclusion to come to, right? And well, it would be if you had actually earned the plunder. verse 23 David replied, "No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. David knows that this battle wasn't won by great military tactics, or even by the strength and might of his own men. No, this this victory is the Lord's victory. And so the Lord is the one that has given them this plunder. They didn't earn it. And to say that those who fought are any different from those who didn't is missing the point that it was God who won the battle. So verse 24. The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. Those who fight and those who are fought for, both share in the victory that has been won by the Lord. So a bunch of the plunder gets divided out to all the people who didn't fight as well. You can have a sheep and you can have that and... You can imagine that there's still a huge amount. All of what in verse 20 had been called David's plunder. The big question is, what's he going to do with it? Is David the type of ruler who just accumulates wealth? Is he like some of our politicians who might refuse to take a pay cut? Who just keep rising their income? Is that the sort of king that David is going to be like? Is is he the type of king who takes and takes and takes? No. David is the king who gives. He is the generous king. Verse 26. When David reached sick he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. It's not even just David's men who benefit from, from David's generosity, but the elders of Judah, the Israelites' benefit. And now on one hand, we could look at this and say, oh, what great political maneuvering from David. You know, sending them a message saying, by the way, I'm not one of those Philistines, here's some proof. And well, it's these very men who, just three chapters later in 2 Samuel 2, crown David as king of Judah at Hebron. These elders, it's not like David has never met them or that he has no connection with them. No, it says there in verse 26 that they were his friends. David, David gives to his people, his friends. If you were with us last year, you might remember when we looked at chapter 8 and looked at Samuel's warning about what a king will do. It's up on the screen. Notice the repeated phrase. He will take. He will take. He will take. Samuel's promise was that Israel would get a king who takes. And that's so much like our leaders today, isn't it? Who are in it first and foremost for what they can gain for themselves often. And to reach the next step of the ladder. And you know, we see that in them so often that so often do we get rid of them. (laughs) 1 Samuel 30, it tells us that God's chosen king is not a king who takes but a king who gives. David is the generous king. And you know, there are times when David's generosity runs thin, you know, when he also shows himself to be a king who takes. But we have a king who gives. We have a king who gave more and more and more until he had nothing left to give, at which point he gave his life. John 15 verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. At the cross, when Jesus laid down his life, he showed himself to be the king who gives. The king who gives and gives abundantly. And who is it that he gives to? Well, well, like David, he gives to his friends. Verse 14, if you're my friends, you're my friends if you do what I command. If you're someone who follows Jesus, if you listen to his words and do them, then you are Jesus' friend. We are friends with the King. And what a great privilege that is. Imagine if you could just walk up to ScoMo and, and talk with him about anything you like. You, know, you, could, you could bring up any problems that you have with the country, but you could also just talk about the footy because you know, you're friends. That's what friends do. Well, we're friends with someone far more important than just the Prime Minister of Australia. We are friends with the one who has been appointed as the king of the whole world. Jesus reigns right now as God's anointed king. He has power and authority. And yet it's not his power that he displays to us as his friends. It's his love. His love that is so generously poured out for us. Greater love has no one than this than that he lays down his life for his friends. You will never find greater love, greater generosity, greater goodness than in Jesus, in our King, in our good King, in whose grace we have life. So I guess the question becomes, Well, how should we respond to the generosity of our King? The generosity that resulted in him going to the cross and suffering in our place to pour out forgiveness and salvation for us. If we just take advantage and take for granted the generosity of Jesus, then what's even the point? If I say, thanks Jesus, but then I continue to live in my sin, am I responding to the generosity of my King in the way that I need to. Hear this warning from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. To fall into the hands of the living God. Don't take the generosity of Jesus for granted. Instead, see the goodness of Jesus. See the one who is a leader so unlike any other ruler today. He is a king who cares for you. And he is a king who fought our battle for us. Who went to the cross in our place So that the judgment that we deserve is no longer on us. And see, like David, he even shows his generosity to those who didn't fight in the battle. The benefits of Jesus' victory as he triumphed over sin at the cross, his spoils of victory, he doesn't just take them for himself, he gives. To his friends. What would it look like for your life. To be overflowing with thankfulness for the generosity of your king. What would it look like for us to live like that. Are you friends with the king. And if you are do you take his. Friendship for granted and live as if you aren't friends with him. We have a good king, a generous king. So let's live showing his goodness, placing it on display to the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his generosity. Thank you that we don't just have a king like many of our leaders today, but we have one who even gave his own life for us. Help us to live full of thankfulness for our King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.